areas of, of our lives where we too easily just accept the way things are. It's been a very practical series, and, and perhaps we have said things or we're tempted to say things like, oh, I'm just, I'm just an anxious person, that's just kind of who I am. Or tempers just run in our family. We just have a problem in our family. Or she wouldn't mind me telling you this, but you've got to hear this, what I heard. Of course, those are all statements that have characterized some of the things we've looked at over the past weeks. Things that we don't think about on the surface as blatant sins against a holy God, and yet the Scriptures are clear. That is not how you are called to live. You are not called to be anxious. You are not called to live a life of discontentment. You're not called to live a life of anger. You're not called to live a life of gossip. But you're called to be careful. And so we've sought to let the gospel motivate us in those things that at first at least seem like small things, but as we get into them, we realize that no, these things are at the heart of what it means to live like Jesus. And for Jesus. And so I hope this has been really challenging for you. It's been challenging for me in my life. Don't think of it merely as fine-tuning of the equalizer on your radio. These are big things. This is the volume button. What is your life speaking to those around you? And of course, as we enter into another one of these very practical things of doing I remind you this morning, and this is so important, that we are not trying to make ourselves acceptable to God. No, we are seeking to live as those accepted. That's the gospel this morning. We're not trying to to get all our act together, to get all our laundry spotless so the Lord will love us. No, we're trying to live because we have been loved. And that's what I hope to remind us of this morning and to set before us in these passages of God's Word. And so, Luke 17, a brief passage. Luke 17, verses 11-19, through 19, and then Philippians 4.4. 4. Listen as I read. Speaking of Jesus as He was here on earth, On the way to Jerusalem, he, that is Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and praising God with a loud voice, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And then Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. 
A posture of gratitude, that's the title of this morning's message. I never gave titles to my messages before I came to Ascension. I'm not very good at them, as you can tell. But I did have some rather flashy titles uh, in the hopper, but I decided to go with a conservative title of a posture of gratitude. Here are some of the ones that didn't make the cut. Thanksgiving in February, or Thanksgiving 24-7. It's kind of got a hip feel to it. And this is my personal favorite, somewhere between Tigger and Eeyore. (laughs) It's a good one. This morning we want to talk a little bit about ingratitude. Ingratitude. And you say, really, Nate? We're going to talk about that? You know, ingratitude is not something that's going to make the uh, evening news. It's not one of those things that really gets a lot of airtime in our churches. It's not in the, the basic package, so to speak. It's kind of like that mysterious undercoating that they offer you at the car wash. You can kind of take it or leave it, and you don't really know what it does. It isn't all that visible. It isn't all that crucial. Ingratitude. But think about it. Think about the Scriptures. You who know the Bible, I know that many of you know the Bible well. Think about all the Psalms. All the songs in the Psalter in which you are called to give thanks. To be a people of thanks. In which the writer himself gives thanks. But Paul does this over and over again in every one of his letters. If we look at the Scriptures, it seems to be that thanksgiving is really one of the basic postures of what it means to be a child of God. Not only that, but it's reverse. It's sin. The sin of ingratitude is one of those things that is spoken of quite clearly in the Bible. Let me give you an example. Romans 1, 18-32. Paul says to the church, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, It's ingratitude that is in some ways at the heart of rebellion against God. In some ways, it's at the heart of that slippery slope of sliding away from God when you begin to not give thanks. We might even say it was there at the very beginning that our first parents in the garden suffered from ingratitude. They weren't satisfied. They didn't give thanks for all that the Lord had given them. And they rebelled. And so I suspect, though we don't maybe think of it on the surface, that it's one of those areas, like those other areas that we have thought about, that we have wrestled with in God's Word, it's one of those areas that we need to grow in. It's one of those areas that we struggle with. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for not writing those thank you cards after those Christmas presents. Some of you are going through that. Oh my goodness, I forgot to write thank you cards. No, we're not talking about cultural politeness. We're talking about a heart stance. 
a heart stance towards God in the midst of all the circumstances that we go through. Good circumstances, bad circumstances. You see, we, and and maybe I'll just speak for myself and see if you can identify, we, I am by nature a complainer, not a thanker. I am by nature one who feels entitled to certain things rather than one who feels blessed to have received certain things. It was so interesting after that tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut, it didn't take long, so sad to me, it didn't take long before suddenly a hundred million dollar lawsuit began to be filed over one of the surviving six-year-olds in one of those classrooms for emotional and psychological trauma and injury filed against the state of Connecticut. See, we feel entitled rather than being humbly thankful. Child still before us. Well, where to begin with this issue of gratitude? Books and books have been written about this. Lots of ink has been spilt. One of the great things about these sins, these respectable sins, so to speak, that we've been covering is that there's just a plethora of literature about every one of them. In some ways, after this whole thing's over, maybe the last, the last sermon in the series, we'll put a book table and just give you kind of a taste of all the things that I've been reading in preparation for challenging you with God's Word. But we begin this morning simply with the Gospel. Gratitude is at the heart of the Gospel. And so we must begin there. This message isn't particularly complicated. My hope is really to do one thing. To do one thing. To let the Spirit of God by way of the Gospel, by way of His Word, spur you to put away all those, well, glaring as well as those hidden pockets of ingratitude and clothe yourself with thanks. Have a posture of gratitude in all that you are, in all that you do. Lives that ooze with gratitude. And so two promises guide us this morning. Kids, for those of you taking notes with your clipboards, we've got two promises from God's Word that I want us to think about, specifically from Luke chapter 17. And the first one is this. Jesus has come to make you whole. Jesus has come to make you whole. In our Western modern culture of medicine, there are few comparisons, I think, to the ancient disease of leprosy. Leprosy is a disease that can still be found in our modern world in faraway pockets of Brazil and India, Indonesia. But for the most part, it's not something we deal with in our culture, but it's a terrible disease. 
a terrible disease, both physically as well as psychologically. And I'm no medical expert, but I can read those who are. And so I've read this week about this disease and found this description of the ancient disease of leprosy, the disease that our characters are inflicted with here in Luke chapter 17. He writes this, It might begin with little nodules which go on to ulcerate Kids, those are sores that get real infected and real painful. And the ulcers develop into a foul discharge. The eyebrows fall out. The eyes become staring. The vocal cords become ulcerated. The voice becomes hoarse. The breath wheezes. The hands and feet always ulcerate. Slowly the sufferer becomes, I'm sorry, did read this, a mass of ulcerated gross. The average course of that kind of leprosy is nine years. And it ends in mental decay, in a coma, and ultimately death. Leprosy might begin with all the loss of sensation in some parts of the body. The nerve trunks are affected. The muscles waste away. The tendons contract until the hands are like claws. Then comes the progressive loss of fingers and toes. Until in the end, a whole hand or a whole foot might drop off. Terrible, terrible disease. And in the ancient world, there was no cure known. If you caught this disease, it was a death sentence. It meant one thing. It meant the end of your life. The slow, painful, life. And of course, no one wanted to catch this disease, a, a disease which in fact was highly, highly contagious. And so in biblical times, lepers were literally cut off from the community, from all of society. And so just imagine, dads, you go to the priest to have him examine some sore that you have found on your arm. And he determines upon looking at that sore that you have contracted leprosy. And he pronounces you unclean. There's no going home. There's no going back. You are essentially quarantined. Goodbye to your wife. Goodbye to your children, goodbye to your neighbors, and hello to a lifetime of seclusion and wandering with those who suffer the same fate. God Himself even prescribed the procedures that were necessary to deal with this affliction. We read about it in Leviticus 13. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, essentially as a warning to anyone approaching that, okay, we can see there is a disheveled man. He probably is a leper. And as he comes close, he is required by law to yell, unclean, unclean. So it wasn't just the physical suffering. That was bad enough. That was painful enough. But it was also the fact that here you're, you're wasting away and there's no one at your bedside. There's no one to give you comfort. You're alone. You're isolated. 
So here are these ten men. Who knows what their histories were? Who knows what their backgrounds were? Who knows what kind of family they left? But you can imagine when they heard about a man, Jesus of Nazareth, that was doing wonders in their land, that they were going to do their very best to intercept, to seek him out. And so that's exactly what they did. They intersected with this man, and from a far off distance, because that's the closest they could get, they cried out, Jesus, Master, have mercy upon us. It was a cry of desperation. It was a cry of last resort. And it's got to be your cry this morning. It's got to be your cry this morning. You see, for us here today, leprosy is so much more than this ancient, incurable, horrible disease. It is a picture of us. It is a picture of our sin. It is a picture of our desperation of our spiritual condition. You see, leprosy was a disease of uncleanness. Our sin requires cleansing. Leprosy was a disease that affected the whole body. It spread to every member, every faculty. Sin is something that affects all of us. Every faculty. It was a disease that separated from the community. And of course, sin fractures our relationships around us. It was a disease that was incurable. Except for divine intervention. And our sin puts us in the same exact predicament. See, this story is a story about you. It's a story about me. It's a picture of how we need to be cleansed as these men were cleansed. We need to be made whole. And praise God, Jesus comes to make us whole. The good news is that we can be well. That we can be restored because of Jesus of Nazareth. This is how the Bible speaks about this disease. And it's interesting throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, that when when the writers of the Old Testament speak of people being contracting, let's say, contracting leprosy, they use words like stricken and smitten. That person has been afflicted with leprosy. Dozens of times the Scriptures does this. Leprosy was even used as a judgment. So if we think ourselves as leprous, spiritually leprous, as those who have been smitten and afflicted with spiritual leprosy, what is the one remedy for those who are smitten and afflicted? Well, Isaiah 53 proclaims Him. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You see, this is where we begin. This is where we all, first time, for the thousandth time, through faith 
in the work of Jesus on the cross, the one who took your filth, who took your brokenness. It's only through crying out for His mercy in your hopeless state that you can be made whole. You who were empty, you who were hopeless. And did you notice the timing of it all? The timing of the cleansing of these men. The Gospel calls you to obedient faith even before there is evidence of wholeness. Do you notice that? Jesus doesn't heal these men immediately. He does in some instances, but not here. Instructs them to go to the priests. The the ancient health inspectors, so to speak. The ones who could verify that they were indeed clean. But you can imagine, there they stood at a faraway distance, totally mangled, totally in pain. And he says, go to the priests. And what do they do? They believe. And they start walking in their leprous state. They take him at his word. Despite no evidence of change, they take him at his word and they're healed along the way. And friends, Jesus calls you to the same trust this morning. He calls you to cry out for his mercy. He came to make you whole. He came to deal with your uncleanness, your sin. He came to cause you to thrive. He came to make you a worshiper as you were intended to be. And that's what we'll see as we move on. Because right now you're saying, I thought this was a sermon about ingratitude, about thankfulness. And that brings us to the second promise. You see, we have to begin with the gospel. If we don't realize the depths from which we've come, how can we truly have hearts that overflow with gratitude for everything? And so the second promise for us this morning is this. True wholeness leads to Christ-centered gratitude and joy. True wholeness leads inevitably to Christ-centered gratitude and joy. It has to, and that's where I want us to be led this morning. For the other thing that takes center stage in this account of these ten lepers being cleansed is the worship of the One. The worship of the One Samaritan who returns. And just as His cleansing was a picture of our own cleansing, so His return ought to be a picture of our return. It ought to be a picture of our gratitude. Now there's all sorts of interesting questions uh, to answer and to think about in this passage in Luke 17. We will answer some of them, but probably not all of them. But I want to look first at the issue of misguided gratitude. You see, I think everybody in this passage was grateful. Even the other nine. Can you imagine? I mean, I just described that disease to you. Can you imagine those nine men walking along the road in obedient faith to the Lord Jesus, the priest, being suddenly healed? I don't know how it worked. Maybe they had stubs and they suddenly grew back on their fingers. Who knows? But can you imagine them not being grateful in some way? See, the problem was misguided 
gratitude. It's the same problem that we suffer with in our world. I mean, I suspect for some of those men, those men that didn't return, maybe they were thinking things like this. Maybe the gratitude immediately turned inward. I am so thankful that I told us to intercept that man. And wasn't that a good idea? I am so glad that we found him. That was my idea. Or maybe gratitude was replaced by pride. Finally, finally justice has, desi- has, has been deserved because you know what? I didn't deserve that disease. I'd done nothing wrong. I had been a good Jew. So this is just, this is just getting back what I deserved. Thank you. Or maybe, as often as done in our world, gratitude just goes nowhere. Can you believe how fortunate we've been? Man, was that lucky? What a coincidence. And maybe, just maybe for some of them, we don't know if the other nine were Jews. It's speculated. Maybe they were. The fact that the one returner is, is named as a Samaritan. Maybe the other nine were Jews. And maybe they thought that validation through the priest's pronouncement was what was necessary. Maybe they had to do that. They were grateful, but they weren't immediately grateful to whom gratefulness was due. I don't know what those men were thinking. It's interesting to think about. But I have a hard time believing they weren't grateful in some Way, but it was totally misguided. As Paul said to the Roman church, we might say it was zeal without knowledge. Without true knowledge. Well, in contrast, this Samaritan knew that he had been cleansed. He knew exactly why he had been cleansed. He knew exactly what power cleansed him by the grace of God. And everything else was trumped by his need to worship the one who cleansed him. He needed to give thanks for undeserved grace. And the fact that he is named as a Samaritan is, is added fodder for the fact that this was radical. Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, and this Samaritan had just been healed by a Jewish man. This was radical. Jesus' compassion is extending to the nations. And friends, this ought to be us. This ought to be us this morning. Recipients of grace are those who overflow with thanksgiving. Grace brings about gratitude. Eager to worship. Eager to serve. And You know, the two words, those two Greek words, the Greek word for thanksgiving, the Greek word for grace, they're inseparably tied together. The Greek word eucharistia, giving thanks. Its root derivative is a word charis, the word for grace. At the heart, the Eucharist is grace. Grace is at the center of thanksgiving. 
And so it's all throughout the Scriptures that the realization of grace overflows in thankfulness. Oswald Chambers, the author, said, the thing that awakens the deepest well of gratitude in a human being is that God has forgiven sin. And yet, how often, how easily, again, I'll just speak for myself, how easily I feel like the other nine who have forgotten my healer, who have forgotten the depths from which I've come. And so how do we continue to to widen that well of gratitude, as Oswald Chambers says, that well of gratitude? How How do we widen its opening? Well, let me close with just a couple practical things for us to think about. Three R's. It just happened that way. Three R's for us to think about in cultivating a lifestyle of gratitude. First, recognize your heart. Recognize your heart. In other words, mine is not one that naturally gives thanks. And I came up with a list here. This list was easy for me because I just thought about my own heart. And maybe your heart's like mine. I am naturally prideful. I'm naturally ungrateful. I'm naturally forgetful. I'm naturally self-centered. I naturally grumble. And I naturally think I'm entitled to everything that I have. And how we need to recognize the ingratitude of our own hearts and our need for a new heart. Our need for a renewed heart by way of the Gospel. And how do we cultivate that kind of heart? We cultivate that by rejoicing every day in the grace that you've been given. And that's the second R. Rejoicing every day in the grace that you've been given. From the whole, from the grand cosmic grace of eternal life in Jesus Christ to the 10,000 mundane moments of your life. You deserve none of it. You've accomplished a lot of things in your life, but there's not one thing that you've accomplished outside of His goodness, outside of His kindness. Go to the Scriptures. Go to the Gospel promises. There's an old story of a, an old Archbishop of Canterbury. His name was Thomas a Becket. I don't know if the story is true, but the story is told of his mother when he was born. She was so grateful, she was so thankful that every year on his birthday, I guess as long as he fit, she would put him on a scale. And on the other side of the scale, you know, one of those scales that balances out, on the other side of the scale, she would pile possessions until those possessions weighed more than her son. And then she'd take all those things and give them away. It's a great picture. It's a great picture of rejoicing in the grace that we've been given. Having a posture of gratitude in our lives. My wife's good at this. She's not here this morning, so I can talk about her all I want. But she's good at this. She makes lists. She makes gratitude lists. 
She was prompted by some author that she read. And so we're into the hundreds and hundreds of things that she is grateful for. And she lists them on her blog. And she's so grateful for the mundane and the gigantic, the cosmic. It's been a great thing, even for my own heart. Well, then the last R is to redirect your gratitude to Jesus. Redirect your gratitude to Jesus. You have to enjoy the gifts, yes, but by way of the giver. How do you talk about your circumstances as chance events in your life, as good fortune or as the hand of God upon you, even in trials? And of course, at the heart of redirecting your thankfulness and your gratitude to Jesus, the one to whom it's due, worship and prayer is at the center of that. And you're here this morning, so you're well on your way. As we gather each Lord's Day morning and we renew our covenant with God, we remember His steadfast love for us, His unending faithfulness, His relentless redeeming love, and we're humbled again about our distractions, about our tendency to wander, about our tendency to forget, about our tendency to take the glory for what we have, rather than giving thanks to the one whom it's due. See, the leper fell at Jesus' feet. Don't you love that? (laughs) He was far off. Master, have mercy on me, and now where is he? Bam, he's right at Jesus' feet. Why? Because he can be there. Jesus is the first person in who knows how many years that he can be right next to the first well, whole person, and it's the Son of God whose feet He's at. I know that many of you are going through difficult circumstances. I know that many of you are going through difficult trials and thanksgiving seems like it's the last on your agenda, but I encourage you this morning, in light of the Gospel, to fight for it. To fight for thanksgiving. To fight for gratitude in your hearts. In obedience to God. God God says in Psalm 50.23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. In fighting for thanksgiving, in fighting for joy, even in those difficult circumstances, you know what effect that has? You feel the presence of God in your midst. Because you're reminded, even as you cry out for thanks, that I'm not alone. That this is not a surprise to my Creator, to my Redeemer. That in some way, in His mysterious will, He is working all things for the good of those who love Him, and I love Him. And so I know that this is good, and I know that I can give thanks, and I know I can do that thing that James tells me to do that I didn't think I could ever do, and that is consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of any kind. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. You know that God is doing something in your life. You may not know what it is. You may not think it's good at the moment, but there's always more that you can see. And so fight for thanksgiving. Fight for joy. 
Because the last effect that this has is you reflect Christ to those around you. You reflect Christ. And sometimes I'm baffled at the way we are. We ought to be some of the most thankful and joyful people on the planet. And yet we're not. And I'm not saying you have to be happy all the time. You're not Tigger all the time. But surely we're not Eeyore all the time. We're somewhere in between having deep, robust joy because we know who God is. We may not know what He's doing, but we know who He is. We know what He has done. And when we have that kind of posture, those around us, they see it. They know it. They might not know why it's there. But that's exactly why. They sometimes ask. They sometimes ask. May our lives be a showcase for the Gospel in our thankfulness to the Lord. Jesus has come to make you whole. Let that wholeness Fight for that wholeness to overflow in your lives with gratitude. May God give us the grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word this morning. Words of life, words of challenge. And we confess to you, I confess to you, my own shortcomings in this area, my own forgetfulness. Father, root out my ungrateful heart that I might rejoice, that I might give thanks in all things, having these gospel promises before me, not just a future that is, that is unimaginable and a glory that awaits for me and for all those in this room that look in faith to the Lord Jesus, not just because We can endure till that, but because even in the midst of the circumstances that we're going through, we know that You are at work. We know that You are good. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that You would have Your way with us today through Your Word. If there's anything I said that shouldn't have been said, strike it from the memories of these people. But those things that I have said that are true, that are your promises, may they find deep root in the hearts of your people. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.